Dr. Luis Sandoval is accomplished in the fields of mental health and spiritual warfare. A medical doctor, board certified in neurology, psychiatry, and family medicine, he is also a psychiatrist for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange, Ministry of Healing and Deliverance. Now, Dr. Luis Sandoval. Welcome to the clinic. Another wonderful day here at the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you for all you who tune in and all of our listeners. Um, today we're going to talk about addiction and what that means and, and as the person who's addicted, what that means for them. And really, more than anything else, the family members of the person addicted. But before we do that, let's go ahead and start with a prayer. Let's say in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The topic of addiction is one that really resonates with a lot of people. And I used to work in addiction medicine way back when, uh, early on in my medical career, uh, working with the homeless population, working in different clinics. And addiction, really, when we say the word addiction, right off the bat, we start thinking about drugs and illegal drugs and substances and that we get on the street. There's also the addiction and uh, the um, habit-forming nature of some of the prescription drugs that are out there that people can actually get addicted to and, and want more of. But when we talk about addiction, we can think about it from the biological process. We can think about it from the drug aspect process. Um, but we also forget that there's a big component uh, of the family process and how many people it affects. And so that's something that we really need to touch on because I remember working in that field and a lot of the family members coming to me with a lot of questions, uh, not just about how to help their family members uh, in terms of what can I do to help my family member, but then they had confusions and they had questions as to where did I go wrong? What, what did I do, especially if it was a parent? Uh, you know, why is my child doing this? I tried to bring them up correctly. I tried to show them the right way and I never thought they would fall into drugs or alcohol or even prescription medication. Um, <clears throat> but we also need to consider that people have a choice. But let's back up a little bit. Let's, let's organize this talk a little bit more and think about addiction from, from different perspectives and different levels because it's much more complex than just saying, oh, somebody wants to take something and, and they're going to ruin their lives and they're terrible and they're bad people and there's a lot of labels and stigma associated with it. So let's look at addiction for what it is. First, let's look at it from a brain process. It is, there is a very biological component to addiction. So sometimes people think, oh, there's, is, they just need to stop. There's just, why, why do they, people who do drugs keep doing this? Um, and I'm going to use the term drugs in this talk just because that seems to be the most common thing. Um, but as the talk evolves and any listeners out there, you'll know that addiction can be addicted to anything. You know, there's people addicted to not just drugs. There's people addicted to pornography. There's people addicted... <clears throat> excuse me, to just looking at the internet all day long. Doc, I can't stop looking at the internet. I can't stop checking my emails. Uh, these are all addictions. Uh, but why is that? Why, why is that addiction there? What happens in the brain? Well, if we look at the brain, there is something we call a reward pathway. So let's start by looking at the biology of it all. In the brain, there's different chemicals that run through the brain that give us different signals. And one of the most primitive uh, signals of the brain, one of the earliest from evolutionary development 
uh, is in the ventral tegmental area and what we call the reward pathway and this interesting chemical called dopamine. And the more dopamine that the neurons release from one to the other in what we call the synapse, or the synapse is the space between the brain cells or the neurons, the more dopamine that's there, the happier the person feels. And different drugs are going to affect the pathway differently just because they, have, they all have different uh, chemical components and molecular components, uh, molecular structures. But ultimately, the, the end product is the same. It's, it's to increase more dopamine. Well, what happens when we increase this dopamine? You get a sense of euphoria. You get a sense of being otherworldly. You get a sense of being out of your immediate space, right? So this happens. How do we fix this biologically? We're still looking at that. We know the process, and the process we've, we've studied through animal models and, and different scientific uh, <clears throat> uh, studies where we can look at how these brain processes work, uh, and we know that this is the pathway. The hard part is knowing how do we turn it off? How, how do we um, make sure that this, doesn't, this isn't the response to these substances? Well, we don't have that just yet because the other thing to consider is that this is a natural, important response in the brain. We don't necessarily want to shut it off completely because <clears throat> it's the reward pathway. It's the same thing as saying, you know, you enjoy food. Now, granted, some people can be addicted to eating, but if, if we turn off this pathway, will it also shut off other pathways? We don't know that. We're not there yet. But when it comes to drug use, it's important to understand this, and it's important to understand that see, to see that this happens in the brain because a lot of people don't believe that there is a scientific biological nature to this. They think that people are just using drugs indiscriminately, and, and that's it. we got to understand that once this happens and once this dopamine is released from one cell to the other, the reward is felt, but biologically something else is happening. We increase the, the amount of dopamine that's in the brain. The other cell who receives the dopamine registers this. And in the nucleus of that cell, all of a sudden, over time, over time, the nucleus starts to develop uh, a change. We see conformational changes. I can give you a few fancy terms, if you will, um, <clears throat> as far as transcription factors and gene expression and things of that nature. But what you really got to understand is this term called neuroplasticity which means that the brain learns. The brain continues to learn. And so when we look at this, the more that you give the brain these drugs, the more that it has this response of increased dopamine, the more that it does that, the neurons start to adapt to that. They start to change to that. And this is true of anything we do in life. So if we start learning something, we start to develop new neuronal pathways. If we dedicate ourselves to a life of prayer, a life of meditation, the brain will start to develop neural pathways that lead us in that direction. And that can be very, very healthy. With drugs, what we see, though, is that there's a very fast, immediate response to this chemical that's going to start to help the brain develop these neural pathways much quicker than, say, the, the slowness and the, and the peacefulness of prayer. It's two things towards the same end. But what you've got to consider is that when there's neural plasticity, when these changes uh, take place, the brain is going to start to react to this, and this is what the brain wants. So if you're used to using something like marijuana, and that's what's going to cause these neural pathways, then the brain is going to respond to marijuana. If you're used to using cocaine or methamphetamine, the brain is going to respond to cocaine or methamphetamine. If you're used to exposing your brain to pornography, that's what the brain is going to respond to. So with this addiction, you've got to understand that whatever we're exposing ourselves to, we're training the brain to get a reward from that. 
if that's the case, if we expose ourselves to something and we notice that this is going to result in us feeling pleasure, this is going to result in us feeling a reward, um, then the brain's going to want that. This is important to consider because whenever we deal with addiction medicine, we have to remember we have this interview style called motivational interviewing. Part of the style is being very realistic. Uh, and when we talk to people, we say, well, okay, tell me what's going on in your life. You've come here now. You uh, have been addicted to this substance. Your life isn't, isn't going well. And you've come here for help. So what happened? What, what's the bad thing about using the drug? Well, it's easy to, to talk about. You know, gosh, doc, I'm, I hit rock bottom, as they say. Um, I, I've lost my wife. I've lost my job. I have no money because I kept chasing this drug. Okay. Well, we have to be realistic and we have to say, yes, there was a whole negative component, but there's obviously a positive component to using drugs. We can't deny that. There's something that kept you going to the drugs or something that kept you going to whatever your addiction was. There was something positive about it because otherwise you wouldn't have kept going back to it. This is important to consider because we've got to remember that there is some kind of a pleasure, some kind of a happiness that's derived from using substances or from exposing our brain to whatever our addiction has to, uh, happens to be at that time. It's important to consider that because on the outside looking in, it's easy to say, well, why would you keep using this? Why would you keep doing that if you see that your life is going to pot? I don't know that the person using that is always seeing that. So at that moment, they're just experiencing this pleasure. They're experiencing something otherworldly, something outside of the, of the realm of reality because it takes you out of the moment. So we can easily see that with drugs, with substance abuse, because obviously the brain goes into some kind of a different dimension. But this is also true for any other addiction where we don't necessarily see that, but the brain, we can say, goes into a zone. I remember treating a patient one time who was addicted to shopping, and they would go to the store and they would shop and they would buy a lot of things, and they realized they didn't need them, but there was something about that exchange of money, something about gaining things, and they would keep these things for a while in their car, and then all of a sudden they would feel so guilty, and they would go and return them. And then the next time around, they would do the same thing. They would shop, and they would buy things, and something about exchanging money for goods was very, very pleasurable to them, very habit-forming. Now, this nobody would even think twice about. We see people shopping all the time. We have to go shopping. It's a way of life. There's no way of getting around it. We have to exchange money for goods in order to, in order to survive in the world. We have to do it for food, for clothing, and sometimes we do it for pleasure, for entertainment, for things that we say are not necessary. But for this person in particular, the brain, the the, the uh, uh, act of shopping was working in the same way as taking drugs in the brain. It was working on that reward pathway. And something about that routine kept that person going and saying, I need to keep doing this. And they were in that zone. It's almost like they were in that otherworldly dimension without necessarily using drugs. But we could say, gosh, the money exchange was their drug or the shopping was their drug. Interestingly enough, for this particular patient, they were able to take some of the things back. Some of them they kept because they realized, gosh, maybe I could use that. But it became this debilitating routine because they would actually go shopping instead of going to work sometimes. It can be a very, very powerful brain reward pathway. So this is important to consider when we're talking about drugs that we realize sometimes a person might be a little bit helpless to this. We're going to talk more about this when we come back. We're going to keep talking about the biological nature, but we also got to look at a huge social component as well. More when we come back.
Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day, I grabbed his phone, and I downloaded the app <laughs> for him. I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to Terry and Jesse's show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a wow. week. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Daniel, what a testimony, and I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. Our nation is too full of those that are crying down. Down with the police! Down with the churches, down with teachers, down with government. Can you build anything down? You cannot. Certainly time in our nation to change our words. And let's begin now to use the word up. Up from all of this filth, up from this violence, up from this indifference of courts. Up, up to the hid battlements of eternity. Up, up to God. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to the clinic, Virgin Most Powerful Radio family. Today we're talking about addiction, uh, and we're talking about the different aspects of addiction and how to better understand it. Uh, the first part of the show, we were talking about the biological na- nature of addiction. And, uh, and not to get into too many details on the biology, because I know that, that aspect can be boring. But for some people, some people find it very intriguing. But to understand that the brain is going through a certain process when somebody is addicted to anything is very important to consider. Because we cannot necessarily just look at something and tell somebody, you just got to stop doing that. You know, there is something very powerful. There's a powerful driving force. And so for anybody who really likes the science behind it, just to close off on on the scientific component of it, this is where we look at the primitive areas of the brain, one area called the ventral tegmental area, um, which sends the signals to something called the nucleus accumbens, where there's an exchange of dopamine. And as this happens, as we increase this exchange and and as we influence it, then we can really see neuroplasticity, new changes in the brain, and the actions of dopamine on the brain over time. Now, this is happening all the time, and it just depends on what we expose our brain to. So yes, part of this is very biological, but we can't underestimate how much of this is also influenced by society. Overall, you know, we call drug addiction a syndrome, because even though we know that dopamine is 
uh, the, the chemical that influences the process, we also don't completely have a cure. We, can't, we don't have measures. I can't say, oh, because I'm going to do this lab test, I'm going to be able to tell if you're going to be more susceptible to uh, a certain substance. You're going to be more susceptible to cocaine or you're going to be more susceptible to marijuana. We don't have that level of biological marker. So it's very challenging to treat. We know the dopamine pathway through, through uh, animal studies and scientific research. But as far as, okay, doc, well, now you know this. You know this is a pathway. How do we shut it off? We don't have that level of technology or that level of understanding. What we do know, though, is that about 50% of the, uh, uh, the influence of substances or any addictive process is biological uh, through this process. But we can't underestimate that the other 50% is more social. So there's always a question of, well, is this nature or nurture? Is this is it genetic? Yeah, for some of the people, there's a genetic component. Um, you know, gosh, my family members, my dad was uh, addicted, or my mom or my sister. There's This runs in my family, and that's very, very true. This can happen because it, obviously there's a brain structure associated with it, and there's su some susceptibility. But there's also a social component associated with this. And by a social component, it can be very, very complex. It has different layers we can't just say, oh, well, if you do this one thing in society and you use uh, drugs in this particular way, say at a social gathering, at a party, then for sure you're going to get addicted. <clears throat> it doesn't, it's not that simple. Yeah, if you are already genetically predisposed, and let's say you go to a party and, and you expose the brain to whatever substance it is, you might get addicted just off the bat. That might be the case because that's the way your brain is wired. For other people, though, we got to look at the social nature of it. And by social nature, I mean... What's acceptable? You know, how do you feel about yourself? Drugs are going to take you into a different place. Or, you know, like for the patient I mentioned, going shopping, it takes you out of a certain reality. Is that the way you react to situations where either you want to feel better about yourself and you, and you think that people like you more or you feel very insecure and that's just kind of how your nature is and you're not exactly sure how to deal with that, but you feel that if you're on drugs or if you're drinking alcohol, you feel more confident, um, you feel more at ease. Is your current social situation extremely stressful? Are you in an abusive relationship or a job you don't like? So people start drinking. Um, these are all triggers, as we say, uh, not necessarily biological triggers, but social triggers that can lead somebody into an addiction where there might not have been one before. You know, you never know. So somebody could have been in a stress-free situation, never worried about anything, and never had to uh, have any triggers or expose themselves to substance use in any way. And that's fine. Other people, however, they're exposed to a certain situation and all of a sudden they're going to turn to drugs or alcohol to numb themselves out. It's hard to predict how this is going to happen and this is why we always have to use caution and good judgment when we're faced with a situation where we might want to use a substance or expose our brain to uh, anything that's going to take us out of the situation. A perfect example is, I've seen this happen before, uh, back when I was working in, in uh, PTSD clinics and whatnot, there were cases where we had two soldiers come back, say, from a, a war front type situation, and they had been in the same place. They trained the same place. They were in the same base. They went to. They were assigned to the same uh, uh, battalion, uh, and they and they did the same tours. They were in the same front lines, and they were technically exposed to the same level of of unforeseen violence or potential death. And they come back from these situations. And one soldier might, you know, be a little traumatized or a lot traumatized, but he moves forward, he gets married, he has a family, he finds a job, and he realizes that 
the pains of war there, but he can he can move forward. And once in a while, he'll come in for therapy or a little bit of treatment, but overall, he's successful. His his comrade, his partner, who was right next to him, you know, in the, in the same uh, uh, battalion, in the same fight, in the same places, and pretty much saw the same thing, might come back and his brain's not able to handle this. He doesn't know how to cope with this. He needs to drink alcohol to numb himself out. He needs to escape the situation. He tries to get married and have a family, but he just can't put it together. He can't pull it together. He can't keep a job. He uh, doesn't know how to uh, handle his anger, and so he becomes abusive in his relationship, and he doesn't do quite as well. He's in therapy constantly, but he's continually drinking. He's continually going in and out of uh, addiction treatment, um, and, and his brain was not able to handle it. This is a case where we see, you know, how much of this is biology, how much of this is socially well. For him, maybe his brain was biologically primed uh, to have this, but then we got to consider what's their family background. This is a true story. The, unfortunately, the one who, the, the soldier who was very much addicted, he also didn't have a whole lot of family support. He went into the military because that's where he found his family. <clears throat> he had grown up in a situation where uh, his mom and dad weren't getting along. He didn't have... Uh, brothers and sisters at all. He was an only child, so he didn't feel very supported, and he always felt on his own. He went to the military. He thought he found a family there, and he did. He had some very good friends. But when it came time to deal with things on his own, he might not have developed those social skills or that strength or, or the tools to understand how to deal with challenges if he never had that in his own family. You know, And this is important. This is why it's important to consider if somebody is... Uh, addicted to substances, a good treatment plan is more than just a biological, let's look at how your labs are doing as far as your blood levels and making sure that, you know, you're on right medication for that. It also involves, well, what are you going to do for yourself as far as life? How do you see yourself as a person? Do you see yourself as more than just the addiction? Do you see yourself as more than just using the substance? Because something very interesting happens when somebody starts to use substances they no longer have self-awareness. So, you know, it's interesting. When we're self-aware, that means that we're aware of ourselves within our environment, within what's going on around us. Usually when people start using drugs or substances or addicted to anything, what they have is self-consumption. They have they, they really are consumed with themselves to the point where they don't see anything else around them. <clears throat> Everything is geared towards getting the substance, using the substance, and that can be very, very challenging. It's challenging. They don't see how challenging it is for them because they don't always realize, well, why did I lose my job or why did, why did this happen to me? You know, the self, they're, they're consumed with themselves. They're really consumed with getting the substance or, or doing whatever it is that's going to bring the brain uh, that pleasure at the risk of everything else. So, you know, I'm going to go shopping because it feels good because it kind of takes me out of my dimension. And if I lose my job because I went on my lunch break, but it took me longer to go shopping or I'm in line to pay and it's going to take me two hours and I'm not going to get back to work on time, well, then so be it because this is kind of what my brain is driving me to. Or, you know, I know that I'm really baffled and, and I'm really upset about what I saw in the war front. And I know that if I drink another bottle of, of whiskey or another bottle of wine or take your pick, um, then all that's going to be numbed out. I'm not going to think about that much. The self-consumption is such that I kind of blind myself to everything else that's around me at that time. I'm not getting done what I need to get done. I'm not going to go to school. I'm not going to go to work. I'm not going to be present for my family because I really need to numb my brain out. This is the challenging part about the drug. So 
people, when they use the drugs, we think that they love the drug itself. What we really got to consider is it's that drive for the effect. What's the effect? Is it going to take me out of my social situation or is it going to just put my brain into a different dimension? Whatever it is that, that that effect is that we're driving for, that's a very powerful drive. And it's not something that we need to, um, I don't judge the person for it overall because that's where their brain is at. But how do we help them out? It can be very, very challenging. It's challenging because if anybody is a family member or has been affected by this, you know that when you talk to somebody, there are certain patterns that are there. And this is, this is just what happens. It's not, again, it's not a judgment call. When we were in treatment, uh, when we were helping people out, when I was working in, in different clinics uh, where people were uh, struggling with addiction, with addiction um, there are certain patterns that are just there. The first pattern is, unfortunately, the person is not reliable. It, it just can't happen. They can tell you, yeah, I'll be there. Yes, I'm going to do this, but it just doesn't happen. So it was very common that we'd say, well, you know, we set up appointments, we wait for the person to come, but we know that they might not show because something else came up. Either they relapsed and they found that, you know, they went, went to go do drugs and, and so now they're ashamed and they don't want to show up or they're relapsing and they're going to go get their drugs and they're back into using drugs and they don't want to come back. But whatever it is, this powerful drive makes it so that they tend to not show up to things, tend to not follow through on what they're going to follow through on. And it comes off to family members and friends like, oh, they're just lying or they're a flake. I can't keep up. I, I can't rely on them at all. You know, they say that they're going to be here, but they lie all the time. And so it comes off as a lie. But what you got to consider is that probably in that moment where they make the appointment or where they tell you that they're going to do something, they're probably sincerely thinking that they're going to do this or they really want to do this. They, they, they have this drive in the, in the moment or not a drive, excuse me. They have this, this idea that, yes, I am going to do this. Because somehow, somewhere in there, the desire to get out of the situation is there. It's just hard to follow through on that. So sometimes what happens is they're going to say, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to get done. But that drive for whatever it is that's causing that reward in the brain is so strong that they might just not show up. And that's one of the things that happened. The other common thing that happened is that the self-consumption is such that there's no sense of responsibility. So this is not true for anybody, for everybody, but if, you're, if you've ever dealt with this, you notice that there's a pattern where the person consumed with this will say, yeah, I lost my job, but it wasn't my fault. Um, it was because when I went to go shopping, you know, there was road construction and I wanted to get back to work on time, but had there not been road construction, I would have been back to work on time. It wasn't my fault that I lost my job, even though I was late for the, you know, 20th time. Okay. So that's sometimes what happens. Other times people will say, gosh, you know, I was, I was drinking, I, I got a DUI and they arrested me and I got put in jail and I called my parents to bail me out and boy, they were finally tired of it. And they said, oh, you know, this is your third DUI. We've bailed you out before. This time we're not going to bail you out. You're going to have to, you're going to have to stay there. Well, geez, you know, it's not my fault that I was in jail overnight. It's because my parents didn't bail me out and that's why I was there. And so there's a sense that, you know, nothing's really my fault. Things can get done, but nothing's going my way. More about that when we come back.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. If you shop on Amazon.com, there's an easy way to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Just visit smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center under the desired charity. Now, when you log into your Amazon account and purchase products, a portion of it will automatically go to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio at no cost to you. Thanks in advance for supporting CRC and VMPR. And may God richly bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to the Clinic Virgin Most Powerful Radio family. Today we're talking about the topic of addiction and how this can be a very, very challenging um, thing to deal with, both for the person who is uh, addicted and for the family members. So we were talking about initially how there is very much a biological component to this, how there is a reward pathway in the brain, and how the brain uh, will go through what's called neuroplasticity and new neurons will be made, more new connections will be made, where the brain is going to tell you what it wants. And if, uh, if it's a very, very powerful drive. Um, the other thing we were talking about is that it can be very challenging because there's things that come with this when we're addicted to anything, really. Um, and once these brain changes have taken place, uh, then all of a sudden this drive makes it so that the person who is addicted or who's struggling with uh, the addiction doesn't see a whole lot of things. They don't see how they're affecting other people necessarily. Um, they're very self-consumed. Uh, and and the, it causes the, this addiction causes such a self-consumption that nothing ever seems to be my fault. It's really everybody else's fault. It's really um, something else that occurred uh, that caused this for me. But that sense of self-responsibility, that sense of, gosh, I really need to do something about this, um, is not always there. And that's where sometimes that term rock bottom, you know, when you ask somebody, when somebody comes and gives their testimony about, I was addicted to alcohol for a long time, or I was addicted to x y or z drug for a long time or i was addicted to pornography or shopping or whatever it is and you say well what finally changed your life 
And a very common term is, well, I hit rock bottom. And what does rock bottom really mean? Well, we're looking at the 50% biological, 50% uh, social component, but rock bottom is 100% what the, the end uh, result can be for people. And what that really means is I got to a place where I could no longer blame anybody else because pretty much at that point I lost everything. I didn't have anything else around me. I didn't have anybody supporting me anymore because all the connections I made, I lost. My family got tired of me. They got tired of me lying to them. They got tired of me um, saying I was going to get better, but I wasn't doing it. Um, and I really, really wanted to get better. But until I lost everything, I either ended up homeless on the street. I had nowhere else to go. But there was a moment in time where I realized I've got to do something. And that's really the most powerful thing that somebody who's in the situation can can uh, uh, say or get to or think about. Because one of the challenges is, at this point now, it's my responsibility. I have to do something. Until we get to that point, it's really, really hard to see a change or to see somebody uh, decide to do something different. This is important to, to recognize because when I used to work at these clinics, I remember very clearly a lot of family members would come to me and say, you know, doc, I'm bringing my kid in. I'm bringing the, they're here. They're in the waiting room. I tricked them a little bit. I told them we were going to go, you know, somewhere else, somewhere that they like. I told them I needed to go uh, uh, shopping. I told them I needed to go to the to the store. I told them I needed to go to a restaurant, whatever it was. Uh, but <clears throat> but I brought them here instead, and, and they're right outside waiting, and uh, they really need help. You know, boy, they've been hooked on for a long time. We've gone through so many hoops with them, and we're here. We're so hopeful. We're glad that we're here. We want you to talk to them and we want you to, to, to help them and, and to essentially to get them out of this addiction. How are we going to do this? I'd say, okay, well, I realize that you told them that you were going some, somewhere else, but how do they feel about being here now? Well, there were a few different results sometimes. I mean, and this was a common occurrence. You know, family members really love their, their, their fam other family members, their kids, their cousins, their mom, their dad, and they want to bring them, they want to get them help, and they, and they bring them to you. And then all of a sudden... There were a few different things that would happen. We'd go out into the waiting room, and if they were old enough, sometimes they were gone. They weren't there anymore. They were upset that they felt tricked. They were upset that they felt lied to, and they would take off, and, and they wouldn't be there. And they were, and then, you know, it was up to the family member to go find them. Um, other times, they would come in, and, and some of them would say, you know, yeah, I'm here. Um, we've been talking about this, and I want help. Okay, great. If they got to that point where they said, I want help, Perfect, we can do that. But I got to say the majority of the time, at least at the clinic I was working at, they would come in and we'd have to sit them down and say, hi, how are you doing? You know, gosh, we're so glad that your family member brought you here. They're concerned about you. But ultimately, we had to ask the question, how do you feel about this? And do you want help? Okay. At that point, it was really hard for the family members because if the person said, no, I don't want help, I was brought here, I don't want to take medications, I don't want treatment, I don't want anything, I'm fine with what I'm doing, you know, I'll, I'm living in my room, I'm smoking marijuana all day, I don't care, I don't need to go get a job, I'm just fine with what I'm doing, and I don't want help. Unfortunately, we'd have to turn to whoever brought them to the clinic and say, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do, because unless the person wants help, there's not a whole lot that we can do for the person. It's really up to them to decide, this is where I want to change my life, and this is where the question of rock bottom, what does that mean? It means different things for different people. It was very hard for the family because some parents would come in and say, 
well, my kid's just smoking weed all day in the room. What am I supposed to do? I already told them that there's rules in the house, that they're not allowed to do that. You know, all they're doing is playing video games and hanging out, and they've already graduated in high school, they're in college, and, and they're not doing anything with their lives. And sometimes their friends will come over, and I'm not sure if they're even using stronger substances. And this is where it got really hard. Because then I would say, okay, well, what rules did you set up in your house? They said, well, we said absolutely no, no drugs, but they're still using drugs. And I would say, okay, well, what are the consequences? Well, we told them that if they were using drugs, that we were going to kick them out of the house. And I said, okay, but now the hard part is you got to kick them out of the house. And they'd look at me and they were surprised. And I said, well, these are the consequences that you set up. But if you don't follow through, then it's never going to happen. So what consequences do you really want to set up for your loved one? Or how do you want to do this? Some parents actually said, yeah, okay, you're right. I got to kick him out of the house now because that's what I set up. I'm not here to set up the consequences for you. I'm here to help you look at the situation for yourself and say, what is it that I got to do? Because parents, nobody wants to see their kid out on the street or out of the house or not knowing what they're doing. But at the same time, you got to ask yourself, what are the rules of the house? How do we help them out? If we continue to help people out, if we give them handouts, if, if we're you know, setting up consequences but not following through, whatever those consequences may be, then the person is just going to continue uh, doing what they're doing because they realize I can get help. You know, gosh, I need to borrow the car real quick because I'm going to go to the store. Well, okay, how about I drive you to the store? Where do you need to go? Show me where you need to go and I'll drive you there because you're telling me you're going to go to the store, but you might just be borrowing the car to go meet your drug dealer, you know, or, or to go to an, an illicit place or something along those lines. How do I know that? I don't know, but I'm going to set up some boundaries. You know, oh, my friends are going to come over. No, we're not going to allow those friends in this house. You know, I can't control everything you do either. If you want to go out and meet them somehow, well, you know, I'm not going to let you borrow the car. I'm not going to drive you to go meet your friends, but they're also not going to come to the house because these are people who are not helping you get to a good, a good situation in life. They're not helping you meet the goals. So this is important to consider because until the person is ready to make those changes, it's not going to happen. And rock bottom means different for different people. Remember, this is a very powerful drive. Again, I don't judge anybody and I don't say that they're bad people or good people or anything along those lines. I look at this and this is where it's important to understand that there is a biological component because I look at this and say, okay, this is where your brain is at right now. It's driving you to use these substances. It's driving you to uh, not be responsible. It's driving you to lie. It's driving you to whatever it is. This is where your brain's at right now. How are we going to help you out? A lot of times setting up those boundaries are very, very helpful because then the person starts to realize, wow, okay, so there are hoops I got to jump through. If it's too easy, it's just going to continue. It's not going to, there's not going to, we're not going to see a change because the same way that we train the brain to get addicted, we have to train the brain to get out of that addiction, but it's much, much harder. Why? <clears throat> if we look at certain things, there's going to be associations. So if people go through, say, the AA group, one of the things is, that they teach in the AA group, which is true across the board really, is people's places and things. Now granted as a kid, I learned those were all nouns, right? People's places and things. But this is where there's attachment to people's places and things that will trigger the brain or remind the brain of the addiction and will bring us back to that place. It's kind of like saying, you know, gosh, I remember where I first proposed to my wife. And if I go back to that place, I always remember uh, what was happening and, and the, the moment and what I was thinking and, and this is what we proposed. So sometimes you take the kids and you say, yeah, this is where your daddy proposed to mom. Okay, wow. So that place has a very special significance. It has an attachment to it. 
regardless of what the place is. So the same way that we can have positive attachment to things, we can have negative attachment to things. Boy, I remember when I tripped and I broke my leg on the sidewalk and it was right on that corner. And every time I go by there, I think about that. And that happened, you know, 10 years ago, but I still remember I was a kid and I tripped right there and we had to go to the emergency room. Boy, that, that was a tough day. Well, the same thing can happen with addiction. You know, every time I go by that street, it reminds me of the first time I ever used cocaine. And because I was sitting down with some friends and we were talking and somebody brought it out. So every time I'm there, it has that association with it. In fact, every time I talk to that friend, that's what we talk about in here. He reminds me of how goofy I was or how I was acting that first time I used it. So every time I talk to that friend, I remember about that. And then, you know, I remember that he was wearing a particular, I'll take your pick, a, a red sweater. And so now when I see certain red sweaters, boy, it reminds me of that friend. So people, places, and things are also going to have an attachment to the addiction. You know, every time I go into my room, I, I um, you know, the particular room, a particular area, yeah, that computer, that's, that's where I see the pornography. So now I look there and, and that's kind of my trigger. Or every time I go past that store, that's where I was always shopping, you know, in between uh, going, trying to go to lunch or when I was at work. And I go there and I see that store and it, gosh, it kind of reminds me that it almost causes me to salivate a little bit because there is that reward pathway. A lot of times people will tell you, boy, you know, I think about using drugs and I start to salivate a little bit. And we see that. We see that. Why is that? Because there is a reward. The, 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 the mouth starts to salivate when we know something good is coming. Something's going to fill a hunger or something's going to fill a void. So when I say, hey, let's go get some good food, people say, oh, I'm thinking of good food. Oh, I'm already salivating. I want to go eat. I want to grab my lunch, right? And we start getting hungry. But this is important to consider because, again, we got to look at that biological component. So this is where your brain is at. I know that your brain is that if you talk to this person, it's going to be triggered to want to use drugs again. Or if you go to a particular place, you're going to be triggered to want to use substances or do whatever it is that you were doing. Um, and that's just the biology behind it. It's important to understand that biology. It's also important to understand the social nature because what we want to help people uh, to come to terms with is, well, why are you using this? What's driving you to do this? Besides the brain, besides the brain component, how are you feeling about yourself? What is it that you're thinking in that moment? What do you feel would happen if you didn't do this or didn't do that act or use the substance? More about that when we come back. I started looking things up and reading about the 21 martyrs um, that were slaughtered on that beach in Libya, mm. and they had a chance to, you know, turn their backs on Christ. All they had to do is, you know, go to Allah, and they were fine. Um, but they would they have didn't. been allowed to live if they just renounced That's Jesus. That's correct. They wouldn't do it, yeah. and they put their love of Jesus Christ above their own lives to stand for the truth in this character has that in him. And when you go back to the Gospels, you read about Paul, Peter, all these guys are martyrs. Yeah. Where would we be in a, having a church? We wouldn't have one if people say, if Satan came up to you and said, look, I'll take your life. Oof, no way. You know, Jim, it, it, it's kind of sad because I, I think about people that are depicted in this film. Yeah. 
They've paid with their very blood right. to stand up for Christ. And there yeah. are people who get upset if they don't have their usual parking place when they go to church on <laughs> Sunday. And they have no idea what it means to pay a price to follow Christ. And I hope this movie will help people to, to recognize that uh, there's often a price to be paid for taking the stand that so many people are taking around the world. We have it right here in, in the United States. We can't even go to church right now. Yeah. Okay. Th that's a violation of inalienable rights. And yeah. why our church leaders aren't speaking up and telling the state to go to hell. Hmm. We've got to fight back. And there are very few people. And I, what's this guy's name? Um, MacArthur. Yeah. John MacArthur. He stood no. up. Yeah. But he's a one guy. Yeah. Where's the rest of the buggers? You know? And, and I have friends that have committed suicide. I have uh, buddies. I'm wearing my trident here because uh, several seals have killed themselves. Mm. And they needed Christ yeah. in the church. But I believe it was done intentionally. But as Christians, if we, if we like that way of life, if we don't start standing up and pushing back, uh, we will lose that way of life. It will be, it'll be a used-to-be Christian way of life. But even if there's just a couple of us that are willing to fight back, you know, it's worth my life. Mm. That's, when you asked, why did yeah. you play this character? That's why I wanted to play this character, because I absolutely believe in that. They're not going to cancel Christianity. Yeah. Jim. I cannot tell you. The biological component, the social component, but more importantly, the fact that it affects not only the person, but the family as well. You know, it's not an easy topic to discuss, and it's easy to, to get flustered, especially, one, if, if you're going through it, you might not be aware that you're going through it. Um, but if you're a family member of somebody who is going through it and, and, and you're affected as well, there's a reason for that. It's because we care about our family members and we want to do what's right by them. You know, there's a few things that we want to be cautious of when we are a family member, and that one of those is what we call enabling. And I was talking about that a little bit before. Part of not enabling somebody, actually, let's ask, what does it mean to enable? Enabling means that we care so much about our family member that unfortunately, we kind of hurt them. And what I mean by that is we don't physically hurt them, but when we call in to work and we say, no, 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 they're, they're sick today, even though they're hungover or they're high, um, or we let them borrow the car right away um, because they need to get somewhere and, and we don't try to make sure that they're not going to go somewhere that's going to hurt them further or we just give them money because they're, they need money, a quick handout. All that we call enabling because it does not really let the person see where they're at entirely and help them realize you need to change your life. It's, it's making things too easy for them. It's, it's not helping them take responsibility. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing coming from your heart, but it's a bad thing in terms of are we going to get the effect that we want? Are we really helping our family member out? So I think it's wonderful when family members want to tell their, uh, somebody who is struggling with an addiction, um, you know, gosh, we're going to get you to the clinic, we're going to get you help. But we got to remember, until that person wants to change, there's not going to be a, a, a whole lot of progress made. We're not going um, to see the end result of hopefully the person no longer wanting to go to, uh, towards the substance or the addictive nature or whatever it is that the subject of addiction is. And what we really want them is to fight that desire, to fight that, that wanting to go um, to use drugs or to watch pornography or, or to go compulsively shop or whatever it is that the addiction consists of. Um, so one thing that we need to consider is, as, as a family member, the one thing you want to remember is the person has to be ready. 
and we help we got to help them get into that place of readiness as well because we have to help them realize in order for you know our goal for you is for you to succeed and right now your brain's probably not helping you to see that you know i want to be here to help you get ready i want to be here to to help you succeed and so actually i'm not going to let you borrow the car because i want to make sure that you're okay or I'm going to go with you to wherever you need to go because I want to make sure that to keep you honest because your brain's not helping keep you honest right now. So that's the first thing, you know, there's a readiness. There has to be a readiness from the person. There has to be a sense of responsibility of saying, gosh, yeah, this is where I'm at and this is, this is what I want to do for myself. Great. We can work with that. We can absolutely work with that. Let's get you to a better place. And so otherwise what we end up seeing, and this is what's so hard for us, you know, there is hope. There is hope in all this. We're, we're going to get to a place of hope. But what's hard for us is when the person is addicted on the outside, we're seeing this and what they don't see, it kind of reminds me of scripture. Um, I always like to incorporate our spiritual nature and our scripture in anything that we talk about as far as mental health or physical health. Um, and it reminds me of a passage from the New Testament, the second letter of Peter, uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 22. And he says, what is expressed in the true proverb has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and a bathed so returns to wallow in the mire. Unfortunately, what that means is that, um, you know, the person who's addicted, they might get clean for a little while or they might start to move in the positive direction. But that drive is so strong, it might bring them right back to it. You know, the dogs were considered dirty animals back then. They used to vomit and they eat their own vomit. And we see that. Um, and it, and it kind of feels the same way. Gosh, well, you know, on the outside looking in, what are you doing? You know, look and look at your life. You, you, you have such a good life. You have the potential for, for so much more, but you get clean and then you go right back to the cocaine and you go right back to the marijuana or you go right back to the alcohol or take your pick. You know, we want to see you clean, but as soon as you clean up, you're going back there. Why is that? What's wrong with you? And our tendency in our human nature is to see them as dirty, either as a dog who eats his own vomit, or a pig who, who once is clean, goes right back into the mud, right? and, that, and that's what it looks like. But we want to be cautious, because as family members, what I have to remember for myself as well, as a, as a, say, a treating provider, um, is that I don't want to judge them, because I also have to look at, I'm not perfect. Isn't this what happens every time we sin? Isn't this what happens every time you know, we, we make amends and we say, no, I'm going to go to confession, I'm going to make my life better, I'm going to improve myself? But then that drive to sin, how, how close is that to an addiction? How close is that that my brain is wired in a certain way where, you know, I want to clean up. I don't want to do that again. Boy, I fall again. And I got to get back on my feet. So that's really the key is getting back on our feet, you know, every time. If we're headed in that direction, we want to know ourselves well. One thing that I remember is, as being a treating provider, it takes me back to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and I always like to think about where Jesus talks about judging others. And where he says, how can you say to your brother, let me remove that splinter for your eye while the wooden beam in, while, while there is a wooden beam in your eye? You hypocrite, remove the wooden beam from your eye first. Then you will clearly see to remove the splinter from your brother's eye. It's important to consider that, not because I want to say, oh boy, well, we're all sinners, so we shouldn't say anything. But one thing to, con to really look at is that if somebody is struggling from addiction, and you're willing to help them and you're willing to challenge them and say, look, this is what's going on in your life. This is what I see happening in your life. They're going to be very quick to turn and say, oh, really? Well, let's look at what you're doing. So how can you tell me 
that this is what I'm doing when I see this in your life. And you're going to say, yeah, but I'm not losing my job. I'm, well, you know, until you change that, you know, I'm not going to listen to you. Why would I listen to you? Another very common characteristic because people who, people who are addicted, and, and I've seen this in addiction clinics, they know there's a, there's a part of them that can feel very ashamed. And the one thing they don't want to feel is judged. And they don't like that because they realize that other people aren't perfect either. And they don't necessarily like what they're doing, especially when they're getting to a place where they say, yeah, you know, I want help. Once they get to the place where they say, I want help, they realize I don't feel good about myself. I don't feel good about what I'm doing. I know it's not good. And, and I don't want other people to see it either because I don't want to be judged. I think we all feel that. I think we all feel that in different ways. I think it's just, you know, none of us are perfect. It's just sometimes easier to hide our imperfections. Um, depending on what that is, you know, and, and addiction can be hard to, can be hard to hide after a while if it's ruined our lives and we get to the point where we feel exposed, we feel naked, you know? And so if nothing else, if somebody ever calls you on it and say, you're helping your family members and say, what am I supposed to do? They tell me that I can't say anything because I'm like this as well. The first thing I would say is, well, take a look at yourself, you know, take a, I gotta take a look at myself. And, and if, they, if somebody calls me on something, I gotta say, yeah, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe I do have to work on that. Okay, well, guess what? This could be a beautiful moment where I promise you I'm going to work on this if you promise me you're going to work on what I see about you. You know, we're, we're going to help each other out. Is this coming from a place of being loving? I don't want to be in a place where we're just judging each other and putting each other down. It's more, why don't we bring each other up? Why not instead of judging each other, um, let's bring ourselves up. And this is something I think I've seen and it's very powerful, especially among family members, where if we can humble ourselves to say, yeah, I have imperfections too, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to stay honest and I'm going to work on mine. And I think that that's going to help you work on yours too. That can be very, very, very powerful. Um, because then the other person does not feel alone. One of the things to consider is that somebody who's addicted a lot of times feels alone because those people who they thought were their friends, well, they're going to be around while they have money, while they have money to buy the drugs or while they have money to provide the substances or while they have you know, whatever it is that they need while they have a car until they lose it. And then all of a sudden they lose that. And those friends are gone. Those people who they thought were their friends are gone. Or let's say they get into legal trouble. Let's say somebody gets a DUI or they get caught with the drugs. Where are their friends? Where are their friends who were with them at the party? Where are their friends who were with them telling them it was okay to do drugs? Are they, are they there to bail them out? Are they hanging out? You know, most of the time I would say nine out of 10, they're probably going to scatter. Um, and all of a sudden the person feels real alone. So if they know that there's a family member there to help them, if they know that somebody's actually going to work with them, but that they're being realistic and that they're not just being judged, then I think that that's, that can be very, very powerful. The other thing to consider, so we talked about the biology, we talked about the social nature. We can never underestimate the power of prayer and the power of our spiritual um, tools that we have as Catholics. It's impossible to to say that that's not going to work. We need to have an element of faith as well, because this is a very powerful, powerful drive. The brain, the brain can be a very powerful uh, tool in the same way that it can drive us in that direction to want to have a different experience uh, by using drugs or by certain activities. It can also be a powerful drive to want the experience of Christ. We can't underestimate that. And sometimes when we hit rock bottom, that's what we hear a lot about. Some people say, Doc, I hit rock bottom, and, and you know what it took? I realized when I was in rock bottom, I needed to get myself better, and I found Christ, or I found religion, or I found whatever it was spiritually that drove me to that. It also reminds me of a passage in the Gospel of Matthew, if you look at chapter 17, 
there's a very powerful passage where Jesus had just had the transfiguration with his with with uh, Saint Peter up on on Mount Tabor, and they were up there, and he was telling them about how he was supposed to die, and really he was talking about you know he had just been with Elijah and Moses, and and he appeared transfigured in his glory, and they, and that was the moment where he was telling them this is how I'm going to die, but this is how we're going to triumph. Um, and the apostles, they didn't get it quite a, right away. You know, it was like, hey, let's build some tents up here. We're feeling really good right now. Why don't we just stay in, in where we're feeling good? And that's where Jesus um, eventually told Peter, you know, get behind me, Satan, because St. Peter was telling him, no, I don't want you to, to, to go die. I don't want you to do this. He didn't understand that Christ was telling him, look, I have to go through this to be triumphant. So it's important to consider this. Why? Because as soon as they come down from the mountain, what does he encounter? He encounters a father who has a son who's possessed by demons and he doesn't know how to get rid of the demons. And he says, you know, I've gone to your apostles uh, and they weren't able to get rid of them. They weren't able to, to uh, uh, cure my son. Let me read you a little bit about that passage. Um, and so this man comes to Christ and he kneels before him and he says, Lord, have pity on my son for he is a lunatic and suffers severely. Often he falls into fire and often into water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And Jesus said in reply, O faithfulness and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I endure you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him. And from the hour the boy was cured. Then the disciples approached Jesus in private and said, Why could we not drive it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. Amen, I say to you, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. We can't underestimate that our faith in Christ and the power of prayer is also going to cause change in our lives. So remember, if somebody's suffering from addiction, one, make sure that we help them, that we support them in a way that we're not enabling them. Two, be there and let them convince themselves and get to the point where they want to help. And three, don't underestimate the power of supporting them the power of faith in Christ in prayer. Until next time, we'll see you back at the clinic. St. Faustina's Prayer for Priests O oh my Jesus, I beg thee on behalf of the whole Church, Grant it love and the light of thy spirit, and give power to the words of priests, so that hardened hearts might be brought to repentance and return to thee, O Lord. Lord, give us holy priests. Thou thyself maintain them in holiness. O divine and great high priest, may the power of thy mercy accompany them everywhere and protect them from the devil's traps and snares, which are continually being set for the souls of priests. May the power of thy mercy, O Lord, shatter and bring to naught all that might tarnish the sanctity of priests. For thou canst do all things. Amen. Virgin most powerful, pray for us. Virgin most powerful radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.